We ride at dawn. Well, not dawn. Um, cause yeah. if I'm having a coffee like now, I'm going to sleep late and then I'll wake up late. So we ride at like, do you want to say like two o'clock? Cause then we can have like a nice lunch. We can have like yeah. a brunchy lunch and then we'll ride. Okay. Yeah. It'll have to be a light lunch. I'll feel sick. Well, that's something like if we have like a brunchy lunch, then there's time for it to go down and then we ride. This is why people hate, hate us. Not us particularly, but posh sounding leftists. Cause we're trying to make brunch plans pre-revolution. Yeah. I suppose the thing to talk about today there's the politics that happened. Oh, a lot of that. We we live in the UK and that's had interesting politics this week. Twitter's been great. Twitter has been great, hasn't it? Um, honestly, a, a little bit like the the Ever Given in the Suez Canal, though. It stopped being fun as soon as he got unstuck from there. Yeah. For, for full context, and I'm trying to work out how rapidly but not incorrectly I can describe this, Boris Johnson... Who like I'm not even sure if he is our prime minister at the yeah, moment. Yeah, he's prime minister. No, he is yeah. still technically still prime minister. It's very shit. There was a vote of no confidence in him back a few weeks ago, which I remember because it was while I was in the states and I was like in a Denny's waiting for my pancakes, fr- frantically refreshing my phone to see if he'd been voted out. Cute. And he didn't get voted out with the vote of no confidence, but then more stuff came to light. I think the the catalyst or the break the camel's back or whatever was that the. the ch- deputy chief whip has been groping lots of people and like still got promoted basically and so then lots of mps started resigning in disgust i think at one point it was like Uh, ministers rather than MPs, so the people in the cabinet yeah they're not um which is a bigger deal because basically the important jobs were suddenly empty (laughs) and then like at least one person who got hired in to replace one of the people who resigned then immediately turned around and was like, yeah, but you should get out of government though. And then I think <laughs> did resign. Uh, and through all of it, he was insisting, I don't care how many of them resign. I'm not going anywhere. Then he fired Michael Gove, which is just <laughs> fucking funny. In a day where there were a record number of ministerial resignations, Michael Gove got sacked. And that really does sum up Michael Gove. Now it's been refreshed with a bunch of people I've never heard of. So. Yes, and Boris Johnson has now resigned, but said he's staying on till October. That's the normal thing to do. Yeah, yeah. He's staying on until the new leader's elected, and that's got to be by October with the party conference. Yeah, although I think if one more thing comes out, possibly they'll push him out before then, but then I don't know what happens in the meantime. Well, Dominic Raab's deputy prime minister, so So I'm assuming he'd step in as the interim. Right, right. Oh, yeah, so one of the batshit theories I read today... uh, the non-batshit part is apparently he's got some big wedding party planned at Chequers, which is like mm. the Prime Minister's countryside residence. Um, and that's why part of the reason he wants to stay until October. I don't know if that's like a motivation thing. One of the tweets underneath was uh, saying that actually all the right, most right-wing parts of the army support him and he's going to uh, dig in at Chequers, refuse to cede and try and start a totalitarian dictatorship with the assistance of the most right-wing parts of the army using Chequers as his base. Cute. Who was the person making that conspiracy tweet? Did they sound like they were into that? Or was it like a scared left-wing No, they sounded like tinfoil? scared. They said civil war's coming. It was very yeah. left-wing tinfoil. <laughs> Um, oh, last political thing. I'm going to link to a couple of Russ Jones's Twitter threads because they have been a delight for me in the last oh, few the months. Oh, the weekend Tory. Mm. I need to um, get I keep his book. pre-order his book, yeah. Yeah. you pre-ordering books. What did I just order? I just ordered a book you'd be interested in. I've forgotten what it was already. Oh, did you order a book? I did order. Oh, the Oxford Dictionary of Nursery Rhymes to go with my uh, superstition one. Oh, amazing. Oh, and the meaning of lift. 
Oh, awesome. <laughs> yes, right. I need to get a copy. Because I know I don't happen to my old one. I am reading Children of Green No at the moment by Lucy Boston, which is a book from like the 1950s. It's like a kind of mystery thing. I'm only like a few pages in at the moment. Um, but podcast relevant, like 10 pages in or so, I guess. Not far before where I've got to now. Someone singing the Lily White Boys, oh. which we talked about in Hogfather. So it's cool. quite nice to just spot that out in the wild. Yeah, cool. Well spotted. It's amazing the kind of things you do spot that you never would have without Pratchett doing all this stuff. Yeah. yeah. Without Pratchett first and then without like getting way too into Pratchett like we have done the last couple of years. I like, don't know. What I don't think this it's unfair a, to say that, is it? Like, this, this is, is a normal for... amount of being into Pratchett. <laughs> if that were true, there would be hundreds of other podcasts, not merely dozens <laughs> about it. Do you hear that? But ben from Pratchett has set up a, a Wikipedia uh, the Guild of Podcasters, which Guild of Podcasters, we should link which, to that. Yeah, I will do. But yeah, he's counted like 30 of them or something. Bizarre. Yeah, they're not all active though. No, that's true. Yeah, Some have sort of faded off the internet. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guys. They went off the edge. Do you want to make a podcast? Yeah, let's make a podcast. <laughs> I had nothing to segue into that one. I was going to say something about going off the edge. <laughs> so I think that was better. <laughs> right. We ready? Yeah, sure. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. cool. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> Stop the press. No, don't. I just Fuck shout me. that. <laughs> just about to do the intro. Oh, it's been ages since I sabotaged you. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The True Shall Make You Fret, a podcast in which we are reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series, one at a time in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen. And I'm Francine Carroll. And we are talking about the truth. We are. The 25th Discworld novel. I know the number because it says it on the cover. The quarter century. The, 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 ugh, the, what's the 25th? What's the, the like duel or something that goes along with that? You know what I, I mean? No idea. Yeah, okay. I do. Good. I don't know what it is. 25th Discord novel. We're yeah. here. We're excited. Um, Before we crack on, spoilers, note on them. Mm. We are a spoiler light podcast, obviously heavy spoilers for the book The Truth, but we will avoid spoiling any major future events in the Discord series, and we are saving any and all discussion of the final Discord novel, The Shepherd's Crown, until we get there so you, dear listener, can come on the journey with us. Remaining at all times, cult, canny, scrutable, and floating below the height of the university's walls. That is for the best. <laughs> so is that like all the university's walls? Because like no, below the height the of the university, the university. Okay, because if below the height of the Tower of Art is still pretty high. Oh, I see. Um, no, I think we'd probably better stick with the Bursar's rules. Okay, okay. Fine. If he's not allowed to, you know. All right. We don't want to upset fine. him. Yeah. Okay. Um, have we got anything to follow up on? I feel like I should. Yeah. Uh, hold on. Hi, listeners. We like Hi, you. Hi, listeners. We do. We do. Did you? Uh, you've, you there, did you? Have you got the emails and stuff? Uh, do you want me to get those up? I've, uh, it's probably easier for me on account of the desktop. No, that's right. I've got them in front okay. of me. Um, well, in the meantime, dear listener, no. <laughs> the um. <laughs> Scone of Stone, final fucking update, because there's something about this subject where I just can't say anything accurate, apparently. 
Um, I still managed to get it wrong last episode. It's already in Scotland. It's going to move to Perth in 2024, not 2022. And I did know that, so I don't know why I said 2022. And uh, that's, I think, I think, I think all of the corrections (laughs) on the fucking scone. Uh, We have a lovely email from listener Marie who um, has been following us on Facebook and is now listening from the beginning of the podcast and is sharing fun bits and pieces that might interest us. Mm. Um, Can't remember the episode, but we talked about cautionary tales. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hogfather. It would have been Hogfather. Um, Harry Graham's Ruthless Rhymes, we would enjoy uh, an example. Little Billy, brand new sashes, fell into the fire, was burned to ashes. So now, although the night grows chilly, I haven't the heart to poke poor Billy. Oh, I say. That's very good, yes. That's a very Roald Dahlian, isn't it? Yep. And it's uh, uh, fin- I just finally pulled up the uh, comment, and it was, as I suspected, uh, Craig who corrected me on the on the scum. Thank you, Craig. <laughs> Thank you, Craig. And I promise I won't talk about Scotland again for a while until my brain's working again. <laughs> uh, also from Marie, um, just sort of tangentially related to dwarf folklore, uh, when they visited the salt mines in Krakow, uh, mm-hmm. there's lots of salt statues of dwarves called, carved by miners. Um, including a few of evil spirits who are believed to steal tools and cause cave-ins and bad air. Oh, cool. So I really want to go to Krakow and visit some salt mines now. Oh, mischief mischief salt gods. That's very and cool. Oh, I'll be looking that up. Least related is a recommendation to read bits by uh, an American humorist called Robert Benchley. Apparently he was part of Dorothy Parker's uh, circle and also grandfather of uh, Peter Benchley, who wrote Jaws. And we would like his humour very much. And um, so I'm sure that Terry Pratchett have read his work, especially since a collection of essays was printed in the 70s for journalists. Ah, yes. Uh, okay, edi- that sounds good. The editor suggested if any journalists were short of ideas for an article, they should read these. Uh, I recommend Stop Those Hiccups, East West Homes Best, and How to Get Things Done. So that's a little pop it in the various books we keep buying because of this podcast thing. My shelves. They are full. <laughs> God, they're so full. I need to Oof, reorganize my bookcases. <laughs> <laughs> I need to reorganize this room. Okay, let's talk about the book, The Truth. Francine, do you want to introduce us to it? Yeah, um, I've, I've tried to stay brief on this intro because I know we've got a lot. So this is the 25th Death World novel, as we've said. It is the name of our thing is in this thing somewhere. Yes, somewhere. We've, we've already come very close to it in section one. We'll come really closer to it. Yeah, uh, but yeah. It was released in November 2000, so we've been kicking, we've been dragged kicking and screaming or led gently by the hand into the new millennium now. Um, A delight. The title, of course, comes from the Bible quote, John 8.32, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you fret free, free, shall make you free, frep, something like that. Something like that. Um. I have a little blurb. I have a little blurb. Tangential question. Where do you stand on the subject of dust jackets? I just had to hunt through for this one. I, If I'm reading a Harbuck with a dust jacket, I will take it off the book while I'm reading it because they yeah. annoy me. Same. I'm now getting to the point where for my most read hardbacks, so like um, a slip of the keyboard, Yeah, I think I'm just going to get a folder and put all the dust jackets in them because I that don't see sense. the point of them. But yeah. I don't have a ton of hardbacks that I read often, to be mm. fair. Anyway, the blurb. 
William DeWord is the accidental editor of the Discworld's first newspaper. Now he must cope with the traditional perils of a journalist's life. People who want him dead, a recovering vampire with a suicidal fascination for flash photography, some more people who want him dead in a different way, and, worst of all, the man who keeps begging him to publish pictures of his humorously shaped potatoes. William just wants to get at the truth. Unfortunately, everyone else wants to get at William. And it's only the third edition. Goodness. So the uh, the kind of, I guess, slight background to this is that Pratchett himself, obviously, was a journalist for quite a while. Lots about that in Mark Burroughs' books that we keep going on about, Magic of Terry Pratchett. Um, in fact, I learned a lot about that subject in that book that I didn't know. Um, he cared about journalism a lot. And I think you can see that throughout this book. Uh, you can also see even in the forums, I'll link to a thread where he's getting very passionate about the reporting on the war in Iraq in 2003, uh, linking back to one of our past conversations. Um, But yeah, I'll I'll leave it there because there's a lot you can say about practice in journalism and there's... uh, Maybe we'll do that as a bonus one day. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Shall I tell us what happened? Yeah. (laughs) This section is running from page one to page 145 in the Corgi Paperback Edition. Hopefully by the time this episode comes out, I will have tweeted that or something. The dwarves can turn lead into gold, or so the rumour goes. William DeWerd writes down the rumour as Colon and Nobbs watch the city gates and chat to some boaters, and the press can't be stopped as it breaks free from its dwarfish owners, runs down the frozen street, and knocks out our ink-stained hero. Mr Pin and Mr Tulip boat about in a mess as Fowl or Ron and Gaspode watch on. William wakes to a printing demonstration and receives some amazingly efficient copies of his Ank Morpork newsletter. Meanwhile, a coach arrives to a meeting. Someone is the spitting image of someone. At the university, the bursar mustn't, before setting out to see what these cheap printing rates were all about. William takes notes as the dwarves discuss rates with the future-facing wizard, while Hunon Redcully visits Veterinary to complain. An elderly, smelly dog sleeps under the table as Veterinary explains moving with the times and sets out to visit the printing press. Pin and Tulip chat to Charlie while Veterinary holds William responsible for the dwarves' endeavours. The nefarious new firm watch Veterinary and aren't are watched in turn by our favourite four-legged friend. William finds news and the dwarves shape the print until the newspaper takes shape and Fowl or Ron, with Gaspode's assistance, negotiates paper selling. Mr Slant, the legal revenant, absolutely does not meet Pin and Tulip and discuss blackmail before Tulip does a bit of connoisseuring. Meanwhile, at the printer sheds, enter Saccharissa. Furious over her father's lost engraving income, she's ready to give William a piece of her mind and ends up taking on a reporter job and being sent out to seek news. In a musty ballroom, anonymous chairs tell Pin and Tulip that no harm is to come to Vetinari, he's just to be ousted, while Ron sells papers at the palace and Vetinari takes meetings. Sacharissa brings news and Mr Wintler brings a humorous vegetable. The dwarves find space in the cellar and William is summoned to Vetinari to learn the difference between man bites dog and dog bites man. Events fill the paper as Pin and Tulip seek insurance and William takes meetings and thinks about pictures. Charlie works on his attitude, and early in the morning, Vetinari reads the paper as the door opens, silently. Papers sell like hot off the press cakes, and William hires Otto the iconographer and looks at letters. But wait! Something's happened at the palace! Ah. Vetinari has murdered someone! Brackets, allegedly. Thank you, thank you. I didn't edit it down, so I decided to be more enthusiastic about it, and I hope you wouldn't notice. Oh, I noticed, I noticed. But as I told you, I will be noticing this time, because it's got all my... Sub editor, you've got sub editor brain for this Sense episode. Is tingling. Yeah, 
However, in this, this is in the style of uh, of, a, of an old newsletter because yes. we're now moving into the press. We're moving, and, in. and, and it was perfect. So well done. Speaking of moving into the press, helicopter mm. and loincloth watch, and sure. the runaway press is the helicopter. Absolutely, don't think about it too much on cool. loincloths. Yes. Uh, Brezek, the leather-clad barbarian. I feel like there's an implication of loincloth. I mean, it was Hrun and Cohen that in- introduced this spot and inspired it. Yeah, I should say so. Yeah, yep. that's loincloth. Um, my my small adjacent thing, um, I always go on about the weather, so I'm just going to put that in here. Mm-hmm. I know I've mentioned it a lot, but I really do appreciate it. It's, it's, it's this in, in this case, it's the winter, the deep winter, and it's just—it's always just this universally relatable background that he sticks into this fantastical city. So it just kind of grounds you in it because you know how a heat wave or a cold snap or thick fog feels, and it kind of make—and it does make everything feel different. And I just think it's a really good way that he keeps integrating us into the story. And uh, I noticed it again here. <laughs> it's, it's a cold. good moment. <laughs> Other little bits we like to keep track of, as for where we are in the timeline, we're about to be dragged kicking and screaming out of the century of the fruit bat. Good, good. I am and kicking, I am screaming. We have yet another reference to Mr. Hong and the three Jolly Luck takeaway fish bar on Dagon Street. Yep. R.I.P. Mr. Hong. Poor Mr. Hong. But I like to think his we legacy keep lives his... on. <laughs> I like to think we keep his memory alive. <laughs> we all do. It terrified, terrified memory. <laughs> Uh, do you want to go first on quotes? Yeah. So, nice bad taste quote here. This is when What's His Chops is standing on the ledge. We find out what His Chops actually is in a bit, but I, I can't remember what. Arthur Crank, there we go. Steeplejack. That's right. Ex Steeplejack. <laughs> Far below, the crowd were trying to be helpful. It was not in the robust, dank, Morpork nature to dissuade anybody in this position. It was a free city, after all. So was the advice. Much better to try the Thieves Guild, a man yelled. Six floors and then you're on good solid cobbles. Crack your skull first go. There's proper flagstones around the palace, advised the man next to him. Well, certainly, said his immediate neighbour. But the patrician will kill him if he tries to jump from up there, am I right? Well, well, it's a matter of style, isn't it? Tower of Art's good, said a woman confidently. 900 feet almost, and you get a good view. Granted, granted, but you also get a long time to think about things. On the way down, I mean. Not a good time for introspection, in my view. I just love the little Ankh-Morpork aside. <laughs> Almost Monty Python. but I was about to say that bit reads, reads a bit Monty <laughs> I think that Python. might have just been my voices. <laughs> I love that moment. That makes me laugh a lot. <laughs> it may be in poor taste, but it's very funny. Uh, anyway, he wasn't trying to commit suicide, really, so it's fine. Um, mine is from slightly later on when uh, Osso takes a photo with his dark light from the... Mm. Uberwaldian deep cave land eels, whatever they're called. Yep, with his obscurograph. Obscurograph, thank you, that's the word. There was a soft, noiseless implosion, a very brief sensation of the world being screwed up small, frozen, smashed into tiny little sharp pins and hammered through every cell of William's body. And the footnote, in many ways, William DeWord had quite a graphic imagination. Didn't he? <laughs> I love that Terry Bratchett writes this really fantastic bit of description and then yeah. kind of blames it on character. <laughs> I also like the kind of implication that while William DeWard is feeling this occult nonsense, he's managing to perfectly describe it yes. in real time. Uh, beautiful, beautiful. Speaking, Speaking of, of William DeWard, 
of characters. Well, yes, well done. The same segue, simultaneous segue, the name of our terrible band. Excellent. Yes, yeah, starting with William uh, and his initial job writing to various dignitaries, some of which we've heard of. Can I do the reference first? Yeah. Of yeah. William DeWord. Yeah. Uh, Winkin DeWord is who it'll be talking about. Uh, a printer and a publisher in London, worked at William Caxton's Press, which was the first in England, took control when Caxton died in 1491, in 1500 or 1501, moved from Westminster to Fleet Street. Ah. And the rest, as they say, is fairly well-recorded history. Marvellous. Yes. That's too good a name not to use, isn't it? That's a perfect name. I didn't know it was a reference either. I didn't look that one up. I just assumed it was a... Well, I didn't. It, it, it came up in my research about the history of the printing press. Oh, marvellous. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, family background. He's got an interesting family background. This mm. is the nice, the books using the books. That was a great sentence. Um, in that he had this relationship with his father, with his family. He was very comfortable in his kind of second son role and got away with existing in the way he did at his school, Hugglestones, until his brother was died in the Clatchian War. Mm. Which, which we, is we've seen. We've seen the Clatchian War. Uh, and it's described here as an ins- insignificant war over before it started and the kind of war that both sides pretended hadn't really happened. It's a good callback because I think Pratchett made an effort there to humanise the people who'd just randomly died. Yeah. Uh, via, via Willikins, wasn't it? Who was saying, uh, you know, this guy was... A... This guy had a sweetheart yeah. and this guy used to yeah. sing songs for us every night. Mm. There's a nice relation back to it there. Hugglestone sounded very, uh, you know, that horrible school that Prince Philip and Prince Charles went to. Oh, yeah, I can't remember what it's called, yeah, but it does sound very either. that. Yeah. Maybe stop sending kids to boarding school. Well, William turned out right, but... <laughs> <laughs> and he's the best example I can think of of a real-life person. <laughs> yep. I like... Um... Lord Vetinari refers to him as Lord De Word and he cor- mm. corrects him with it's Mr. And it certainly is because his father's not dead. Well, yeah. Vetinari <laughs> knows that, I'm guessing, and is just making a little dig. But there's a nice, it, I feel like it's less about the fact that his father's alive and it's more that he's very, I think oh, yeah. not a lord, won't be a lord. No, absolutely, yeah. But Vetinari uh, uh, forcing him to say that. <laughs> Uh, and it's a fun counterpoint to Vine, so I'm going to put a pin in that and come Ooh. back to it. Pin for pin. next episode? Next episode. Yeah. I feel like it's. It, we said we're going to spoil the book. Vimes will be here. Yeah. Shock. Surely not. Something's afoot in Ankh-Morpork. Vimes won't have anything to do with that. But setting up his main sort of big character detail is this relationship to the truth being this... Uh, mm unalterable fact that it has he has to tell the truth mm. he isn't creative about it and it gives him a really good motivation for this book yes yeah a very straightforward one yes but one that he'll have to kind of think in a non-straightforward way about which is cool uh speaking of not very straightforward pin and tulip <laughs> not even in this dimension poor mr tulip poor mr tulip i mean kind of i don't know for <laughs> violent murderer but our favourite violent murder of the hour. <laughs> so I was all set, I think, even before I did my first reread to talk about how I always think they share a lot of DNA with Mr. Creep and Mr. Vandermar, the mm-hmm. old firm from Neverwhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I looked at Annotated Pratchett and I found a lot of people have drawn that comparison. 
the devil you um, say. <laughs> and comparison to lots of other criminal duos. Uh, and uh, so I have this quote from Terry Bratchett. Ah. And I feel like he was quite annoyed by this at this point. Yeah. Number one, the term the old firm certainly wasn't invented by Neil. I think it first turned up amongst bookies, but I've seen the Cray brothers referred to that way. Since the 60s, at least, the firm has tended to mean criminal gang, and indeed, the term turned up in Discworld long before Neverwhere. Uh, two, fiction and movies are full of pairs of bad guys that pretty much equate to Pin and Tulip. They go back a long way. That's why I used them and probably why Neil did too. You can have a trio of bad guys, but the dynamic is different. With two guys, one can always explain the plot to the other. Hmm. Uh, so that's fair, but I still feel like they do share a lot of DNA with Creep and Vandermar. Like, I feel like it's more that, uh, what's that word I used the other way? Convergent evolution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they both shared a lot of creative energy like yeah sent each other vibes that kind of thing yeah but i mean he is right they they're so effective because we can see them because we've seen them in a hundred things already yeah like it's obviously in slightly less ing format but (laughs) god i love the ings i was practicing to myself for you what dashing Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I was just going to say through dashing. Through the snow. <laughs> every time. Well, he's kind of dashing through the snow, except mm. the snow is honk slab. I've, I've been practicing the pause. Powder. The pause is Joanna. <laughs> Maybe we should make that the podcast. We're not going to make that the podcast swearing. No, no, we're not, no. My favourite ing moment is uh, when they're going into the room full of mysterious chairs and uh, the virginal. Yes. It's not an ing harpsichord, it's an ing virginal, so-called because it was an instrument for ing young ladies. My word, was it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Mr. Tulip. It it is a beautiful character detail that he's incredibly into architecture and art and antiques. Yes. I think that was where I kind of got the Creep and Vandermark collection, because there's the whole thing with one of them where he collects antiques, but it's so he can eat them. Cute. <laughs> God, I love that book. But I also love this book. Let's talk about this one. Yes, better do. <laughs> I feel like we'd be remiss as well if we don't um acknowledge in the whole relationship to criminal duos thing the pulp fiction bit that they do with Diggler's Dibbler's hot dogs. Oh yeah, I've never watched pulp fiction. You're gonna have to enlighten me. Oh, uh when Mr. Pin's saying, Oh, do you know what they call a sausage in a bun and quirm? They call it Le Sausage Le Bum. Le Bun. And uh then Tulip says, uh, oh, they ought to call it a sausage dons or a derriere. And it's a bit in Pulp Fiction. They're in the car and they're like, oh, you know, they uh, they call a quarter pounder with cheese a royale with cheese because they've got the metric system. It's a very famous scene from Pulp okay. Fiction okay. where they talk about what they call a, quarter, a Big Mac in French. They call it Le Big Mac. Ah, super. <laughs> Le Grand like, Mac. <laughs> yes, no. I'll be honest, I've only seen... I've only seen Pop Fiction once, and the only scenes I remember are that scene and the dance. Now I've seen the dance. Yes, because we used to do it in the pub. Mm-hmm. And then Charlie. Oh, Charlie. I mean, what Charlie a silly does, man. Seem, does seem to be kind of dumb as a brick. Mm. It'll all be over by Friday, though, won't it? And trying to negotiate for more money while basically being held hostage. Yeah, he's slightly the wrong flavour of stupid, unfortunately. It's also it's a nice mystery build up because we know we have someone who looks like someone. I don't think it's even explicitly said in this section that it's Vetinari who he looks oh, like. Oh, possibly not. No, 
but I, I mean, I feel like it's obvious enough that we can talk about that. C- certainly by the end of the section, yeah, with the that Nara's yeah. murdered someone, yeah, allegedly. Um, but it's it's good writing. It's a good mystery mi- writing. Hmm. And then we have Gunilla Good Mountain. Again, we have a name Gutenberg. Yes, the Bible uh, guy. Some of the other dwarves we also have uh, Caslon. Caslong, sorry, Caslon, a font. With Bodney, which is Bodney, a font. Many fonts in this, many typesets. Gutenberg, by the way, fucking WordPress. I wish they hadn't called the new, new, not anymore really, but uh, UI Gutenberg. It makes research just one step harder on Google, which I know is not much. It's not much really, but. Still, could mm. you not WordPress? We've, yeah. we've discussed this. Cheers. Cheers, WordPress. Um, we have Hunon Ridcully. I didn't really need to put him in, but any Ridcully is a delight to me. Yeah, we um, have an actual. We have the we have the original, the OG in there as well somewhere, don't we? Yes, the OG well, is yelling there as at well. the Bursar. I just I, I was trying to keep characters down for unseen. Um, well, you can't you can't keep Mustrum down. They haven't yet built a man that will keep old Mustrum down. And such a man cannot be built. <laughs> Blind Io, on the other hand, has had a bit of a cold, but he's up and about again now. <laughs> he's got his own newsletter. It's my favourite. I think it's one of my favourite jokes in the whole book is this with the whole Omnians have learned to print the pamphlets and very much spreading the good word. And he's like, have you got any good word to spread about your God? He's, like, he's doing all right. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. Um, Lovely. And I was shoehorning the bursar in because one of my favourite quotes from the whole book is, and now I must fly. Except that Except I mustn't. I mustn't. <laughs> that is also just one, one of those little, Yeah, <laughs> there's just a, there's a few of those just silly little quips in here, and I love it very much. <laughs> I like the idea that they finally kind of calmed the bursar down by getting him to hallucinate that he's sane, which yeah. is relatable. And there's only one one side effect, which is fine, and he seems to enjoy it. Minor amounts of flying. And we have the group I've decided to dub the Misbegot Misfits, the uh, residents under the bridge. Oh, sure, sure. I think I'd originally kind of list- noted them as, you know, the beggars, but they don't really beg. No, they've all got very different techniques of extracting money. I think Misbegot Misfits is good, yeah. Yeah, oh, obviously. The, yeah, the, the bridge bunch could be the other, but that's a bit Brady Bunch-ish. I refuse to call things bunch. And if we try and go all earnest and call them the unhoused of Ankhmore Pork... It all gets a bit much. We sound it? like twats. Yeah, yeah. We do sound like twats quite a lot of the time anyway, so let's not add to it knowingly. <laughs> so yes, we've got Coffin Henry, Arnold Sideways, the Duck Man, uh, Altogether Andrews, and all of Father their Ron personalities. And, 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 ah, and, and Gaspo's back. There's a new there's a newbie in the group for these 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 um oh, also I noticed we've got some new foul or Ron Doggerel and I forgot to look up whether this was from the original source materials. Scraplet, thatch and trouser, a blue at the grawny man. I enjoy know. it. Enjoyable, certainly. I don't, again, really not sure if it's uh, original or whether he fed something else into the machine. I keep meaning to look this up in more depth. We'll get there one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we will. Sure, yeah. we will. Sure, we will. I like the idea of Gaswade having his proud little barge ride back to Ankh-Morpork, and as the barge pulled past the Misbegot, he just went, yeah, they'll do, and just hopped <laughs> off and decided to go and be mates with them for a bit. Absolutely. And he's talking to Fowler Ron like he, he understands the bug rips. Yes. Which is cool. They've somehow got a common language between the talking yeah. dog and the 
random doggerel. Ah, there you go. <laughs> And Sacharissa Cripslock. Is it Sacharissa? Is it? I've always pronounced it Sacharissa in my head, but now I'll, now you say it, that is clearly how it's pronounced. Follow. <laughs> so I'm basing that entirely off uh, one of the TV, the TV adaptation of Good Good. Ah, try that again. The TV adaptation of Going Postal. Mm-hmm. There's a brief moment with a Sacharissa Cripslock, and it's said like yeah. that there. No, I'm sure you're right. I don't I don't know why I've said it Sach in my head because Sac. I mean that Sax is a surname. Yeah, um, I've never seen S A C H B pronounced such, so it was just. But so I, I feel like her father is also implied here. And remember, back in Masquerade, that mm-hmm. there was a Mister Cripslock of the Engravers oh. Guild, and I said, ah, ah, put a pin there, put a pin oh, there, come back to that. It. I put a pin in it. You put a pin in it, and now you've taken the pin out, and he's escaped and fucked off with Tulip. But now we can come back to Cripslock. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, did I make him? No. Oh no. <laughs> Left him pinned up in the opera house for too long. <laughs> so we have Sacharissa William Cripslock. Was it William Cripslock? I can't remember the name of her father now. No, I don't think it was. Mr. William. Cripslock. Yep. Which is a very fun word to keep saying. She is a character I greatly enjoy. I feel like uh, her whole vibe with William is that very kind of screwball comedy thing I've talked mm. about before. I really like especially in the context of it being kind of journalistic and I can imagine them with transatlantic an- accents shouting across the newsroom to each other. Oh, I fucking love the uh, Bojack Horseman. Yeah, no, I- I'm basically imagining her. What's her name? Uh, I can't remember the character now. Well, for listeners who haven't seen Bojack yeah. Horseman, there Not is like a whole yeah. subplot involving someone with a very strong transatlantic accent who's a newspaper journalist running around finding a story. My one criticism when it comes to Sacharissa um, sorry, I'll let you say it first. <laughs> I'm not criticizing Sacharissa, I'm criticizing her description. Cool. I want to preface this with saying, like, so William never really gets a physical description in this book. Like, you can't do much to picture him. Huh. Yeah. But Sacharissa, I don't mind the way she's described as, you know, she's got all of these different features that make her very good looking. Yeah. She's got quite good medieval ears because it's funny. Yeah, it is funny. Uh, but then you get the line, she had a well-crafted supply of other features that never go out of fashion and are perfectly at home in any century. And this becomes like a running thing in the book, just the constant reference to her tits. And it is a bit tiring. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. We've come a long way from the blondes in the metal bikinis. Sorry, the tanned blondes in metal bikinis. I'm not even sure what colour Sacharissa's hair is. I'm just going to assume blonde and tat. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, so when she pops up briefly in Going Postal, she's played by Tamsin Gregg. Oh, uh, yeah. Who I love. So I'm, I can't not picture her a little bit as Tamsin Gregg, even though she doesn't have particularly giant tits. But yes, it's an annoying reference that uh, I don't like, and there doesn't need to be a reference to her. There's at least one per section. Yeah. That was the only one I noticed in this form, but that doesn't mean there weren't more. Um, there's definitely quite a few towards the end. Yeah, yeah. But I'm a big fan of her. Oh, yeah, absolutely. She's great. She's um, She gets the hang of it extremely quickly. She does. I also like that she's... Uh, it's another side to that class thing we've been talking about, the kind mm. of desperately aspirational somewhere in the middle classes thing. She's so determined to be a proper, nice, respectable young lady. I love the phrase mannerisms instead of manners. Yes, that's, that's uh, I've, I've made a note somewhere to look look up properly the early usage of both <laughs> of those terms because 
Pratchett seems to be making a distinction I wasn't entirely aware of. No, but I, I, I manners kind of, as in a more of a metaphor, not metaphysical. You know what I mean? Yes, nebulous manners concept. Is, yeah. There you go. I love the word nebulous. I love the word nebulous. And then Otto, I love Otto. Otto has the oddest accent I've ever tried to read aloud. <laughs> it's not like the last ones. It's not like the the. Um, yeah, because in theory, it's Uberwaldian, and we're yeah, reading it it's similarly. A big country, to, I guess. It is a very big country. I've got the map behind me, and it's a good chunk of that. Mm. You're just going to leave that there now? Yeah. That's no, good. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because um, now we never have to try and remember again. It's still it, quite hard to find things if you don't already know vaguely where you're looking. Do you have an auto quote in front of you? I was just looking for the stuff about him coming in and... Oh, no, I have got one. Uh, I am a visit in the dark room. I am experimenting all the time. And I feel it's like... It's isn't it? It's the zir sounds French. I'm always thinking of the light. <laughs> Uh, shout out to his Ankh-Morpork accent. Hello, my cheeky cock sparrow mate, old boy by Crikey. Absolutely. Which is how I'm going to start introducing myself. <laughs> but I'm going to replace the by podcast crikey. intro with that. Yeah, no, by Crikey. Absolutely. My uh, cheeky cock sparrow. Are you going to go full Audrey Hepburn doing a bad Eliza Doolittle ad- accent? Ow! Sorry. Did you just scream? A little That's bit? the weird noise she makes. Yeah, a lot no, I know, but the, the auto ducker on Zoom made that almost inaudible. Oh, did it? Yeah, it, it did not that register that, that as human noises. <laughs> <laughs> Does not register as human noises. Oh, no, is, I'll see um... if it turns up on Zencast and I'll show you the difference when I edit. That's hilarious. <laughs> oh, I'm going to put that in my Twitter bio. <laughs> That's another one for your very long business card that I'm going to make for you one day. <laughs> Does not register as human noises. <laughs> it's important to mention that Otto is a black ribboner, and I guess mm-hmm. Lady Margolotta has taken part in creating something of a trend. I sp- um, well, I- well, no, she was she joined some already extant meetings, didn't she? Yeah, but I feel like she but might I'm have sure helped popularise oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, you're right. She's um. She's the, the kind of vampire that other weirdo hobbyists would want to be. Yes, very much so. I do like that. He, yeah, he's the, the tortured artist recovering. Uh, I'm just going to say alcoholics. I don't know the term for bloodaholic recovering bloodsucker. Yeah. I guess. Sounds a little bit der- derogatory, but I suppose murdering people is something to derog. derog. Fuck. What's the, <laughs> what's the adjective there? Criticize. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but like the derogatory. Never mind. Let's carry on. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, big fan of Osso. Uh, I'm, I'm a writer. <laughs> Does not register as human noises, derog. That's my name. <laughs> Mrs. Arcanum. <gasps> yes, speaking of uh, fun names. That's a great name. Mrs. Isn't Eucrasia it? Arcanum. I love yes. Eucrasia. Everyone who runs a boarding house in this city sounds absolutely mad, and only a few of them are, because this one seems incredibly sane. Mrs. Arcanum is very respectable. She is. Respectable with a capital R. Her lodging house is for very respectable working men, what Sakharissa is uh, unconsciously training to be. <laughs> they will not... What is it? We, we shall not be safe in our beds. That was one of my <laughs> faves. <laughs> Just so straight-faced. <laughs> There's something about these kind of Soon like we will stock... not be safe in our beds. There we go. Sorry. 
these kind of stock responses to like yeah. extreme news articles and yeah. they're just being played really dead camp pan here as if they've got the script but don't know the inflections yeah. yet <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and on the lodges we've got mr mackleduff the the president of mealtimes and purchaser of the paper which mackleduff's great isn't it it's so interesting how Pratchett manages to write such an experience with these boarding houses. I've never, obviously never lived in one, but I very much feel like I have, and I get it. Yeah, I feel like I know exactly what mm. shape it is. Yeah. Huh. Um, and, oh yeah, Mr. Mr. fucking, Mr. Windling. Mr. Ing, <laughs> sorry. Mr. No. Ing Windling. Uh, where is it? What William wondered why he always disliked people who said no offence meant. Maybe it was because they found it easier to say no offence meant than actually refrain from giving offence. Was that in this section? I skipped yeah. right over it. Wow. Ah, oh, it's one of my favourite lines. It's it's yeah. such a specific type of person that we yeah. have all met. Goes along with brutally honest. Yeah. Oh, just asking in good faith. There was, uh, you tweeted something uh, about Oh, a really yeah, bad... the just asking guys, yeah. Yeah. Just asking. I mean this well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Here, in your after your long, horrible story, I'm going to ask you something tangentially related and obviously controversial, and ask you to take up more of your emotional time, more of energy. sorry, more of your emotional energy and your precious time, explaining this to me, a man who will absolutely not take anything you say on board. Yes, those yeah. uh, they're cousins of Mister Windling. Yeah, yes, they are. Good. And then, uh, briefly, our other new hires at the paper. We have Mr. Bendy. He's very much looking forward to writing lots of obituaries, including his own. It's nice to see more zombies. He's an archivist. About. I like him. Yeah. Yeah, zombies him. that aren't so slant. <clears throat> I suppose we've got Red Shoe, of course. But Yes. I feel like slant and Red Shoe are the two ends of the zombie spectrum. Yeah. Zombie spectrum. Yeah. Great band. Love name. that. Yeah. <laughs> you can have that one for free, listeners. <laughs> Uh, and Rocky, the complaints, beheadings, and horse whippings editor. Absolutely, what a name! <laughs> In his nice suit, very happy for him. Absolutely, as this the sports guy, I guess, is the yeah, yeah, in parallel, which is cool. Yeah, because you you do often see sports reporters dressed a lot better than their news reporter friends. That's interesting. I've never really thought about sports reporters, if I'm totally honest. No offence to any sports reporters who might be listening to the True Show Make You Fred. Bill Bryson, who I will talk about either later or next episode, uh, mm -hmm. his father was a very well-respected sports writer. And his, uh, his tale of his father in Life and Times of the Thunderbolt Kid, which is his autobiography, Bill Bryson's autobiography, um, actually made me interested in the art of sports writing albeit briefly albeit briefly but uh genuinely it's yeah. uh it is uh, well as, as anything is as writing technical manuals is even if we're not very interested in that an art that is very satisfying to watch well done yeah i can understand that mm. but uh yeah no i still don't <laughs> much care about the whipping so <laughs> Oh, it's always whipping, isn't it? You've always got to find some throwaway line to say so you can join in talking about the whippings at work, otherwise you look like a weirdo. Oh, ludicrous display from the executioner last night. Did you see that beheading? <laughs> Offside. Walked it into the basket. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh. Okay, and finally, we have uh, the committee to unelect the patrician. A committee to unelect me. Good grief. Um, yes, the very uh, men at arms, is it? I got them mixed up last time. Uh, men at arms are... and feet of clay, the shadowy yes. circle of people. Is it the same room, do we think? Well, no, because we'll find out what room this is. Oh, do we? Okay, sorry. I haven't reread it yet. <laughs> ah, okay. I believe we'll find out what room this is, but mm. I do. I I love the description. This kind of shadowy circle of chairs yeah. that are also carefully lit, so everyone can't see each other's faces. And mm. um, yeah, and this is another reference as well. This is a reference to uh, the committee to re-elect the president, which Nixon yeah. obviously knew nothing about until it was proved that he did during the Watergate scandal. <laughs> Which gives me a quick second to go on one of my favourite rants, which I originally got from your husband, of the fact that Watergate was not a scandal about water. Stop putting gate on things to call it a scandal. Fuck. Fuck, Joanna. We learned the word for that and I've forgotten it again. Oh, the word for putting the wrong suffix on the... Gate gate. Hold on. I'm I'm not letting this slip through our fingers again. How many listeners are like shouting at the podcast right now? Like, it's this, it's this. Lib fix. It's a lib fix. It's called a lib fix. Hey. A lib fix is a, wow, a productive bound morpheme affix created by rebracketing and back formation. Of course. Why couldn't I remember that off the top of my head? Um, <laughs> rebracketing and back formation, Francine. <laughs> Another example is uh, Walkathon which was coined in 1932 as a blend of walk and marathon. We have talked about this before, haven't we? Because OMAT and stuff like that. But I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast or just in one of our absurd, nerdy conversations. This is going to become a problem the longer we do this show. Um, What's anyway, it called again? Libfix. Libfix. Oh, God. Well, now we've got Libfix shout that gate. as many times as possible so that I'm I, going to I can it. find it again one day. In fact, I'm just going to bookmark this page. There Good effort. Go. Well done, me. You do that. Shall I move us forward? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, good idea. Shall I move us forward to locations? Yeah, better do. Obviously, we're in Ankh-Morpork. Pork. We've got some fun places in Ankh-Morpork. Pork. We've been to the Bucket in Gleam Street before. We've been to the Bucket. The Bucket in Gleam Street run by Mr. Cheese. <laughs> Doesn't that sound nice until you start describing it? <laughs> but I love this idea of he's hiring out the sheds in the back and they're full of these like decrepit rocking horses and things. There's something really mm. terrifying, particularly about the mental image of half-built rocking horses. Well, do you know, I was... A couple of weeks ago, so before I started rereading this, walking past a similar complex of like sheds and little bits of land on the outskirts of our town, and, was, and one of them has like a call this number to rent a space. And mm-hmm. I was thinking, oh, I wonder what's in there. Now I know. Haunted rocking chairs. Haunted rocking haunted horses. Rocking horses, sorry. Rocking chairs aren't scary, Francine. No, but the word haunted rocking ch- actually, yes, they fucking are. Have you seen the woman in black? Oh, right, right. Never mind. Stays in my dreams, yeah. Daniel Radcliffe is about to play Weird Al in the new Weird Al bi- biopic. I just want to say that. What? Yeah. Uh, the thing I didn't I know that was happening. Oh, that makes me pleased. <laughs> it delights me. I fucking love Weird Al. I don't know if we've ever talked on this podcast about how much we love Weird Al, but we do really we love Weird Al. definitely have, because I've definitely linked that article that I made you read. Oh, the um, really long mm. long one about Weird Al. God, I love Weird Al. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> Shit, sorry. The Thaumatological Park. <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry. Carry on. Oh, I don't want to say it again. Uh, the Thaumatological Park. The Thaumatological Park. Hubbards of Unseen University. It's this new built sort of flat roof buildings. Um, 
winning lots of awards from the Guild of Architects, but unfortunately built on the Unreal Estate with lots of <laughs> leaky magic. Already the grass was multicolored and some of the trees have walked away. And I like that the not directly from the university, but as a result of the university, this park's opened up around it, selling these like magic adjacent things. Yeah. <laughs> and you're very much like imagining some of those really sad retail parks, the sort of flat concrete ones, but with just enough glass that they're exciting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking like, obviously this is before that, but I was thinking like Google Campus kind of stuff. But um, yeah, there's a bit of that to it as well, actually, isn't it? Yeah, I wonder what the because we're in 2000, so we've got the start of the dot-com boom. I wonder what the, the really exciting complexes look like. Probably a bit like Is this. Is it the start of the dot-com boom? I've forgotten where the years go. It's fine. Dot-com um, bubble, and 1990s. And in March 2001, we're still in it. Yes. Cool, we're still <laughs> in it. And of course, we've got a new disorganiser. And yeah. who doesn't love the delight of a disorganiser? Bingly, bingly, shut up. Bingly, bingly, die. <laughs> anyway, Jesus. Should we take a little break before we talk about I'm sorry, I'm very excited because I like this book a lot. (laughs) So am I. But I keep getting distracted and not talking about the book. We've talked about the book and book of... Look, look, look. This is the setup part of the book. This is the first third of the book. Almost all of this is set up. And I think we're capturing the kind of manic energy of it as well. It's fine. Okay. Do you want to take a quick break before we go on to the next book? Yeah, no, I think we'd better. Yeah. Yeah. Should we talk about the little bits that we liked? Oh, yeah. There's an author's note right at the beginning. Mm. Sometimes a fantasy author has to point out the strangeness of reality. The way Ankh-Morpork deals with its flood problems is curiously similar to that adopted by the city of Seattle, Washington, towards the end of the 19th century. And we get some context here with the cellars and bits of street being built on. It's kind of been referenced before. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to just cover it here because we're going to have so much to talk about in the next two sections. Yes. (laughs) Uh, The Seattle Underground. So after the Great Seattle Fire uh, in 1889, um, one of the rules was that new construction all had to be masonry and streets ended up being built one to two stories higher. The building entrances weren't raised, so they genuinely were, like people using ladders to cross the street, etc. I'm I'm not going to go fully into it. I've uh, linked to the wiki that's got a lot more context. But you can like go and tour it, like what's left of it now. There's a lot of the vestiges of it still there. like Underground. Yeah. So now I want to, as well as going to Poland and salt caves, uh, I want to go to Seattle and tour the Seattle underground. Wow, we've got our very own Atlas Obscura list coming together, haven't we? If we've got any Seattle listeners, like, is it a thing? Is it cool? Yeah, tell us about it. I hope we have Seattle listeners. I've always wanted to go to Seattle. I'd like to go to Seattle. Or stop somewhere for a coffee and a chat if you you exist. My favourite theme pops up again this time briefly in uh, dibbler's brief (laughs) brief career doing feng shui uh he unfortunately convinces uh his customer that the dragon of unhappiness definitely exists and will fly up his bottom and then the dragon of unhappiness does indeed fly up said customer's bottom really proving how important the power of belief is Dibbler does really believe in his... He's such, he's such a good salesman. He has to believe as he says it. He's such a good salesman, he manif- manifested the bottom-loving dragon of unhappiness. Good grief. Maybe I'll make that my new nickname on Zoom. <laughs> um, human interest. Yes. A uh, couple of things on this. I love Saccharis's instinct to sound like a local or very niche newsletter. 
her yes. first attempts at writing sound almost exactly like a camera leaflet. A camera being the campaign for... It's the campaign for real ale. Oh, okay, right. So the first three are just campaign. Got it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I suppose it works better than mm. cra. But I always enjoyed, because they, they have regional branches, they go on beer tours and pub crawls and write it all up in these very familiar sounding passages. And um, I, I love that kind of shit. I love it very much. It delights me. If you've ever watched Have I Got News For You, the kind of newsletter they feature in the back, that kind of style. Um, but also I like I like the concept of human interest stories. That's a kind of deeper subject than we can go into in a little bit as we liked, really. But yes. just the, the, the difference between making a human interest story out of hard news, which is the old, if it bleeds, it leads rule. Yeah. And making news out of human interest is a fun distinction. It is fun. And finally, because William was trying to get Sakharisa to focus on perhaps the lead of the story, which is the man running naked, <laughs> um, <laughs> it made me remember the the burying the lead phrase, which is, you know, if you um, put the main bit of the story too far down, basically. Yeah. And it's spelt L-E-D-E. I always forget that. I always imagine it, like if you yeah. picture the words in your head, I always think you're burying the lead as in L-E-A-D, the, the leading thing of the story. Yeah. Well, it is. That's what it means. It's just, it was apparently, and I don't know how solid this etymolo- etymology is, is apparently just spelled that way to um, avoid confusion in the newsroom because the two words lead, L-E-A-D, and lead, L-E-A-D, are both used very often in a newsroom. And so it of made course. more sense to have one of them spelled differently. I don't yeah, know whether that's, that's true or not, but I, I quickly Googled it before we started. Nice. Because, I, yeah, I, I thought it was possibly just a separate word altogether, in which case I should have known what it was, but no, it's just... <laughs> and speaking of words and etymology... I really like the whole tone that William and um, that Otto sorry, use when they're talking about the, the etymology of the word photographer because it's the same kind of, hey, fun fact about etymology that we use, except it's... You know that another term for an iconographer would be photographer from the old word photos in latation, which means uh, to prance around like a pillar, ordering everyone around as if you own the place, said William. Ah, you know it, William nodded. He'd always wondered about that word. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the idea that the root Latin or latation word is the horrendously specific one that you almost need to make up a technology to match. <laughs> <laughs> Which, oh, maybe the fates came up with some of the Greek root words. We have to, you know. Right, that's a rabbit hole I don't have time to deep dive down. (laughs) Especially as I definitely just bullshitted that whole sentence. Yep, love it. Anyway, um, speaking of bullshit. Terms and conditions. (laughs) They do apply. And would you please tell me about them? Listeners will already know that this is one of my favourite bits of humour. Is very rapidly read. It has been a while. I know we did this in... It was an early enough book that I remember we were recording at your house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So before we went to couple, yeah, yeah, and it never fails to delight me. Hence why I put it in a very silly little play. How far can you get in without breathing? I've been doing yoga. My lung capacity is getting better. 
This device is provided without warranty of any kind as to reliability, accuracy, existence, or otherwise or fitness for any particular purpose, and BioWellCamic products specifically does not warrant, guarantee, imply, or make any representations as to its merchantability for any particular purpose, and furthermore shall have no liability for or responsibility to you or any other person, entity, or deity with respect or any loss or damage whatsoever caused by this device or object. <laughs> Very good. You're halfway. I've got to work on the breath control a bit more before I can do the whole thing in one breath. Yeah, in fairness, that's... Uh... A long paragraph and it's half the size of the others, uh, point point set wise, <laughs> which, yes. which incidentally is something you can you can only do that small because of the the technologies of movable. Sorry, no, carry on. <laughs> but, no, that was all I want to say about it. I love it. Do you want to talk about the technologies of movable type, Francine? Oh, oh, that is yeah, that's next, isn't it? God, we're fucking barreling through today, aren't we? Considering we, we started recording like two hours ago. Mm. Hmm? We started recording like two hours ago. No, no, because we talked Raiders before we started the actual recording. My, oh, yeah, my okay. recording says an hour and a half. Okay. <laughs> so we're, we're on track, I should say, rather than barreling through it, just compared to last week. <laughs> do you want to tell me about movable type? Yeah, I do, I do. I'm sorry. <laughs> so just some, I'm, again, I'm kind of going to skim over a lot of this. I'm going to do a proper rabbit hole this month on the history of the press, because this is something I'm very into and I'm not going to make you all listen to that. Um, <laughs> but just some, so some parallels with the book rather than the entire history. Uh, Gutenberg came up with the first proper printing press in the West. Yeah. That was around 1450. However, however, it is European history that most of us know. And I should probably mention that as on Discworld, where the Agatean Empire was ahead of the curve, here on Roundworld, East Asia got there a couple of centuries before us with the old movable type. Um, the world's first movable type was porcelain and invented in China by the inventor Bi Sheng in around 1040. Nice. I know. Movable type in Korea was also around in, in Japan, all sorts of places. In these places, it was somewhat held back from becoming as widespread as it did in Europe a couple of centuries later by the complexity of the alphabets. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, there was a, a simplified kind of Korean alphabet that could have solved that problem. But there were some people who were not into that. And so it stopped before it started, really. But I'll, I'll link some interesting articles on that. And as I say, talk about it a bit more in the rabbit hole. But in reality, on Roundworld, there was quite a gap between the advent of the printing press and the first newspapers. Um, whereas in Discworld, it looks like it was about three seconds. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was a couple hundred years here. So Gutenberg's press, as I say, started up around 1450. Um Gutenberg's press especially was good because it was the strong but equal pressure that right. made it kind of very legible. Um, I think, I think, I'm going off the top of my head here, but that he based it on a wine press that an acquaintance or a relative had. Um, okay. So that's great for the listeners. Sorry, I just moved my <laughs> arm down in a strong but equal pressure way. Uh, Gutenberg was also credited with and certainly used um, the invention of an oil-based ink. And that kind of acts as more of a varnish than a traditional pigment ink. And that is how you can get some of these fine details and smaller oh. type. So as well as the kind of uh, engraving technologies, you've got this completely different type of ink, which I didn't realize. Um, little fun fact, uh, early presses sold unbound books quite commonly, which would allow buyers to bind and decorate it in their local style and have unique copies, which was uh, a lot more fashionable, nice. a lot more desirable, which is cool. Uh Skipping across uh, the ocean to England, mm -hmm. uh, another parallel is that in this book, we've got the Guild of Engravers, obviously. In mm -hmm. the UK, we had the Stationers Company, of which course. was 
formed in 1403, which you may notice is a little bit before the old press, but got a royal charter in 1557, which made it the worshipful company of stationers and newspaper makers. A little throwback to the old worshipful guilds. Ah. Also, there is a worshipful company of scriveners. Oh, lovely. Which is nice. The history of newspapers, though, so as I say, we're a little bit further forward. The kind of predecessors to newspapers were focused more on European news. So it was kind of keeping people up to date on what was going on in the, on the continent um, because it kind of affected us quite a lot about whether we were going to get involved. And I think it was the Franco-Spanish War could be. Yeah. But it, it also had repercussions for religion in general because it was, you know, the Protestants versus the Catholics. Yeah. Uh, that old chestnut. But on and uh, the continent also got their kind of act together with actual newspapers a bit before us. But but on the 29th of November, 1641, the London publisher John Thomas ha, released a small <laughs> I know, released a small uh, quarto pamphlet entitled "The Head of Several Proceedings." It was a printed version of a weekly manuscript that had been circulating in London for about a year. Um. Mm-hmm. And so in, in, in it, it kind of talked about proceedings in Parliament, basically. It's quite dry in terms of content. It was nothing new. This is from a website, which I'll, I'll link to, um, which is the, the history of print in general. But, oh, sorry, I've lost myself there. But in terms of form and social presence, it was a profound innovation. Oh. It cost perhaps a twelfth and perhaps less of what the manuscript cost and was probably reproduced in greater numbers. So as you can see, it's a kind of similarly, ooh, moment as we have Ooh, in Ang Wolfhawk. Yes. It committed itself to serial publication with clear dates and issue numbers and all of that stuff. So, yeah, it was called a news book to, started, to start with, became a newspaper. Um, I was also reading about some of the history of the Times of London, which is just uh, an interesting one. Again, I won't go into too much detail, but I like the fact that for the first three years of its life, it was called the Daily Universal Record. Oh, um, lovely. Yeah. Um, also, in the eighteen late eighteen hundreds, but still the eighteen hundreds, we had a female editor of the Times on Sunday, eighteen ninety four, Rachel Beer, I think her name was, Indian born, yeah. Also, the editor of this mm, Observer, which is all quite cool, I think. That is all very cool and very fun. One more time, thing. Sorry, here's me scrolling up and down again. I meant to say this earlier. Um, they use the order of the Garter coat of arms on the times oh, right. um, and they did from the first issue and it's kind of been on and off the front page since then um which is like the hanover coat of arms yeah but it's uh the motto on there because i thought i'd try and find a tagline from a newspaper considering it had the truth shall make you free which means a lot of things and nothing at all whatever um is honi soit qui mal y pense which is middle french for shame on him who thinks evil of it which i thought was similarly Meaningful and not at all meaningful. What a good line. Yeah. I'm going to start saying that more. A delight. A delight. And I think I think that's probably all I'd better say. Otherwise, I'm going to go into a whole different section of my notes. So, <laughs> so first of all, uh, as I like doing with these kind of, especially Ankh-Morporky mystery books, I like mm-hmm. looking at how much is set up in the first section and how much is kind of red herrings in the first section. Uh, so you've got this central theme being set up of the dwarfs turning lead into gold. Yeah. <laughs> which they are doing, just it turns out, with a lot of hard work. <laughs> yes, it's a, <laughs> the long way around. 
and having just done a lot of diplomacy in the books with the dwarves, ah. it's quite interesting to now see the uh, attitudes of the people who don't quite approve of the dwarves in the city mm. because they're they're doing things with gold, <gasps> which has mostly confused the alchemists who have mostly just blown up gold. <laughs> One of the things I like is that obviously the idea of this book is is movable type coming to Ankh-Morpork. It's very what happens when thing happens, mm. a delight for me. Mm. But it's been established in fu- in past books, not future books, why movable type doesn't exist yet in Ankh-Morpork. Yeah. And it's all to do with these fears of what happens with the letters once they've been melted down and blah, blah, blah. And I like that the book kind of just answers all those fears here of why it's not come to Ankh-Morpork so far with that. be all right. Yep. But Nara's like, yeah. It's, and it's time got, has come. There's this great kind of red herring of is this going to this, this book? You know, we've had with the other speculative fiction ish books, the what if movies came to more pork, what if rock music came to more pork? It's resulted in everything going a bit dungeon dimensions y. So you've kind of got that brief red herring, is that going to be what the book is? And you get Vesinari even coming to the printing press and acknowledging yeah. it. It was like, remember the Hollywood thing and the music with rocks in thing. Yes. And then, of course, Mr. Hong. I like how Vetinari comes in and skewers the red herring, actually. Yes. It's like, this isn't actually a cult. It just <sighs> looks like it. <laughs> it's great. Because it is described in a similar kind of or- organic way. That Do you remember the trolleys and that were described in Reefer Man? Yeah, the way the press sort yeah. of seems to be alive and yeah. growing and hungry and waiting to be fed. and Yeah. Speaking of Vetinari, one of the fun kind of red herrings, especially for this section, and I know the book wasn't written to be divided up exactly where we have, it's just where it worked. Yeah. He's got this slight little character shift almost. Mm. He's he's a bit friendlier. And in other books, like we may... Well, in other books, we maybe haven't seen him do things like come down to the printing press and play the benevolent dictator close up. Yeah. Um, so it's this, this it's slightly more hands on. And asking after William's family relationships and, and how is your father? It's sad when families don't talk. I feel like that was a bit more of a I know all about you dig than friendly. Oh, yeah, there's definitely logic behind everything Vetinari is doing. But on like a surface level, you could almost see, mm. ah, he's acting a bit out of character. Yeah. And now he's apparently murdered. Well, he was acting funny. Uh-huh. There's a bit of that uh-huh. in there. There's just yeah. enough to make you maybe suspect him. Yeah, because D- Drumknot even seems a little off- put off, doesn't he? I did. I forgot to put Drumknot in characters, which is shout out. I love Drumknot. He's yeah. my, one of my favourite B well, characters. I special equipment, sir. Well, I need special clothing, sir. <laughs> You'll be unsurprised to know that Tumblr ships veterinarian drumknot. That doesn't surprise me, but also, ew, no, superior employee. and the... Okay, no, that can actually kind of work. Never mind. He's a tyrant. I feel like you can't ship veterinarian with anybody if you're going to go all power dynamic on it. I ship him with Lady Margolotta. Oh, yeah, no, you're quite right, yeah. Carry yeah. on. Uh, someone <laughs> I follow on Twitter has like a completely, no, there is no justification for this in the books, but I love this idea headcanon that Drumknot is a trans man and I love that so I'm adopting it too also listeners if you have any this is not really proved anywhere in the book I just really like the idea headcanons please send them to me because they always delight me yeah for sure Unless we do, like we do yuck people's yums but we we find them um we, we find enjoy headcanon very them. fun yeah yes. um, <laughs> um, yeah um 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 sorry um I meant to say 
throwing that I can't believe how fluently we can now talk about shipping, considering I was listening to an old episode where you had to explain to me what a ship was. <laughs> so it's not been that long since I've known what that was. <laughs> Sorry, please carry on. Well, you've spe- we've all spent a lot of time on the internet since then. <laughs> yeah. There was nothing else to do for two years. Oh, no. But one thing I was thinking about with the Vesinari thing is, is this kind of a hint of character shift or are we just used to seeing Vesinari talk to Vimes? Oh, yeah. We, we see him like, through the eyes of Vimes. Yeah. Who finds it hard to scroot. Who <laughs> <laughs> finds it hard to scroot. Please stop using scroot. <laughs> Well, stop creaking your tower and I'll stop using Scroot. Sorry, I didn't realise it was creaking again. If I sit like this, I don't think it creaks as much. And the other setup bit is obviously Vesinari establishing this man bites dog versus dog bites man. Mm. Which uh, we'll put a pin in for later. Yep, yep. yep. Pin in it, pin in it. Oh, we've got to stop putting pins in things. He is a murderer in this one. We'll spike it. Oh, no, we don't spike it because that's it then. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, well, uh, Pop it in the diary. Pop it in the diary. <laughs> and from the setup to the bigger picture, the, this whole development of Discord thing, and I was talking about this last month with the fifth elephant of I love seeing this city change and grow. Mm. And obviously you get a really good thing of it here. I don't know, microcosm of it here. Mm. Uh, with the newspaper coming into existence, like you said, so rapidly. It takes three seconds rather than a couple of centuries. Yeah. Oops, sorry. Um, and the amazing developments happen both on the disc and then as a book series. So on the disc, you have this great uh, moment of Vetinari explaining things to Ridcully, as in Hunan Ridcully, who is the perfect foil to this conversation because Vetinari is trying to explain this idea of sea commerce and information being currency and Ridcully is sort of stuck on, especially if you flick the prawns from tower <laughs> to tower. Oh, they are related. They, they are, are related. related. Oh, I meant to say on the setting up the plot bit, actually, before we go too far. Uh, the, mm-hmm. I really liked how um, there were a couple of times that we switched perspective from like the A plot to almost the B plot, like mid-page. So 44, page 44 on mine. I don't have no idea what it is for yours. But um, you're, you're watching uh, William DeWord see some people buying a hot dog or something. And, it's... and then it goes into that thing with Mr. Pin and Mr. Tulip buying the hot dog. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry, I've got it the wrong way around. On 44, there's a astonishing, astonishing, said Lord Vetinari, getting into his coach. I do hope he isn't ill. Uh, two figures watched his departure from the rooftop opposite, and then it's Mr. Tulip and whatever. Yeah. And just, a like, it makes sense. It's not unconnected connection, but it's just, you very rarely get that mid-page perspective flip without a paragraph, like, like without the little gap or anything. Um, and, yeah, then later on, yeah, it's uh, Pin and Tulip buying... A hot, dog, a hot while dog and William DeWord is nearby. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Dibbler's the connection. <gasps> <gasps> it was Dibbler all along. Anyway. Sorry, also please in carry on. <laughs> Ves- I forgot where I was now. In Vesinari, kind of explaining this amazing progress right now, there is a lovely moment where he does this sort of look out the window, tell me what you see, fog. <laughs> Sometimes the weather had no sense of narrative convenience. <sighs> And then later on saying he liked the fog because he couldn't see the city. Yeah. (laughs) I wonder if it's a tincture of fog. Mm, Soup of the afternoon, tincture of the night. What did we decide the morning was? Not sure we did. Soup of civilization, pudding of civilization. Yeah, cheese course of cosmic horror. 
I think we skip breakfast because it's already quite a full day. Oh god, yeah. No. Let's yes, go back to bed for the metaphor. <laughs> metaphorical bed oh god joanna help rescue me so on the disc and we're seeing this progress happen and we get to see this newspaper like take shape in mm. real time yeah, yeah yeah and obviously it's done rapidly to work because these books mm. are always very quick and very fast paced like i think the events of this happen over maybe a week or two yeah but it's so fun to read it's so fun to read so you have just starting with the Am- ankh-morpork times going for a misspelling of items right keep it put that in yeah um and thirty in my copy anyway, less than 30 pages later, you've got Veterinari saying, it must be true, Drumnot, it's in the paper. <laughs> Which is very much reflecting in a very the attitude. In ironic way. <laughs> in an ironic way, but reflecting the attitude. It's become true so quickly. It's uh, yeah, Mackledough it at the breakfast table. <laughs> Mackledough at the breakfast table saying, well, there must be special people for doing this. They wouldn't let yeah. just anyone write what they like. Stands to reason. Yeah. And you've gone from that to the, oh, don't you know, everything's true on the internet attitude within a day. Like yep. <laughs> you've got the credulity and the making fun of the credulity in record time. I feel like Pratchett has just screamed through his own journalism career yeah. in the first hundred <laughs> pages to get on with the fun stuff. Oh, his uh, William DeWord shorthand, by the way, his own personal shorthand. I, I, I did wonder if that was Pratchett. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> well, I think Pratchett used proper shorthand, but I wonder if he started out using his uh, his own version, his rapidly abbreviated shorthand. I have to ask Mark Burroughs next time. Uh, next time we chat to him, yes. Um, and you get William kind of falling into this newspaper business. He's wondering why he went up to the man that was threatening to jump and then sort of realised, oh, it is my business now. Yeah, no. And that, that made me think for a second, actually. Because, oh, yeah, like the, the phrase, it's not my business, actually, maybe comes from it being like your business to know. This is, you know, literally, I make my money from this. Yes. Yeah. And by towards the end of the section, we've physically seen the paper take shape. We see this printed version that's mm. formatted on the page to look like the paper that starts with, it is the coldest winter in living memory, and that is official. I loved it. I love it. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. It's so, obviously I love it because I love, I love the whole world of it and this topic specifically, but I just love how much fun he's had with it. It is. This is such a joy to read. Yeah. Uh, quick shout out before I go on to the bigger picture, but before photography exists for the newspaper, I, I enjoy the uh, Mr. Josiah Wintler of 12B has a humorous vegetable that he will exhibit to all comers upon payment of a small sum. It is most droll. <laughs> it is most droll. We haven't had much time to talk about humorous vegetables, but it's one of those constantly recurring jokes in the Pratchett fandom that doesn't really irk me because I, I just kind of enjoy that it's spun off into like subreddits purely for stupid vegetable pictures from Pratchett fans and things. And again, with this like manic energy thing, when um, William DeWord is like just really happy that it's not a penis and goes yeah. on about, uh, oh, so I speak to him and his wonderfully nasal parsnip was <laughs> the, the, the bit I wrote down there. <laughs> wonderfully nasal. <laughs> so from a small picture of a parsnip to a large picture of a, a book series... Very good. So we've had like standalone books in the Discworld before, but this is a this is a city book. It's not a mm. continuation of an arc. Mm. Um, and you have William as this character. So we talked like uh, that quote of Terry Pratchett's that was in Mark's book about the early sort of Discworld boys being this cardboard cutout oh, character, yeah, yeah. the Victor, the Tepic, that that whole thing. The early carrot is mm. only just a development from that. And then you go into like the stage of Discworld. We've been working our way through this kind of mid-stage Discworld of the 90s. 
where you have these really well-developed characters, but they've been developed over these long story arcs. You know, yeah. we've had however many watch books we've had now. I've lost count. Granny um, almost appeared fully formed, but even she evolved somewhat. She's evolved and grown and settled yeah. into herself. Mm. Um, and now you have this really developed, well-developed, rich character just placed straight on the page without an arc to build them. It's a testament to how far the books have come. I feel like the word has echoes of the old cutout, it, only in that he is a man of about that age, starting new career. He's yeah. intelligent, but has a couple of foibles that we can overlook. And uh, he's yeah. not very good. He's he, he's a bit of a layabout, whatever. But you know, mm-hmm. um, but in a yeah, in a much more fleshed out way from the start. Yeah, you're right. There's bits of it there, and the books kind of rhyme and i don't think that's a bad thing like the main plot of this book is once again a conspiracy to oust veterinary like you mentioned yeah. earlier that was the plot of men at arms uh, all guards, the other guards. books i think <laughs> all the watch books before incredibly Jingo. small gods somehow i don't <laughs> really weird because we never the eagle to was planning <laughs> he wasn't Francine. even born yet <laughs> francine i'm nearly done don't start I'm the eagle sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's so hot <laughs> I know, I know, but please, please, the eagle flailing. And as but one of the things I noticed is as a book that's like a city book rather than, say, a watch book, A, you get these hints, maybe it's a watch book, maybe it's a wizard's book mm. early on with seeing Colin and Nobby going the bridge and then you go to the wizards before you really settle into William as the main character. It's like almost a sense of, ah, is it one of the, ah, yeah. is it one of the, nah, no, new shiny thing. Because <laughs> we haven't really had like a standalone yeah. set in the city before, there have been wizard's books or watch books. yeah. Um, and like I said, you've got this ousting veterinary plot, but I don't think it matters that it rhymes because it does it in a different way. Yeah, and it's yeah. sorry. Oh no, 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 sorry. I was about to say, I get we've now got the standalone in the city, and that comes right after the city book on a field trip to the countryside, which is quite yes, cool. The watch goes on yeah. holiday. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is interesting, and one thing I noticed that as this kind of standalone city book. Obviously, William is the main character, but it's a bit more ensemble casty. Mm, yeah, yeah. We definitely, we, we're not living inside his head in the same way that we did in um, Brothers, for instance. Yeah, yeah. And to jump onto your point about those perspective shifts, the narrator feels a lot more omniscient. Mm. Whereas a lot of the other books have felt like it's that third person narration, like it, it, um, it's third person, but it's from someone's perspective. Yes. Which is why Carrot is so interesting, because we don't, yeah. get his perspective kind of skitter around the edges with that one a lot of this is williams but not all of it and i noticed some good like omniscient mm. lines like uh this is near the beginning that really was where the trouble was going to start and there was going to be trouble mm-hmm. and it's it's the sense of the narrator knows more than than the reader yeah but it's said in like a, and you know there's going to be trouble way it's like a knowing aside to the reader isn't it rather you can hear you can hear it almost saying yeah dear reader and obviously there's going to be trouble (laughs) you all know what a printing press does yeah it feels a bit like the um arrested development voiceover yes (laughs) and i mean that as a compliment of that just so i can start (laughs) i can get the voice back in my head yeah you can get the ron howard voice Um. But yeah, so I really love how this has developed into a series that's so big it can do these standalones comfortably, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, and the big characters from other books are cameos. And and that works. Yeah. You're not desperate to see everything that's happening in, well, no one's really desperate to see what's happening in Nobby's internal life, let's be fair. I think everybody's very desperate to stop him telling us. We would like to not know. <laughs> please, Nobby, please. <laughs> but yes, that's what delights yeah. me about this book. It feels like a almost like a new era of Discworld. Yeah, which works, doesn't it? 25th? Yeah, 25th's a good time. It it does almost in writing style as well. Almost feels like another step, and not to say like it's vastly improved from the Fifth Elephant because the Fifth Elephant's a fantastic book. But yeah, just uh, things like the like the quiff about the bursar floating away, or like the um, Montab question, just things like that. The sharp quips are just just in there and not acknowledged in a I've... very polished way. I meant to mention the Muntab question right up top because it's not the first time we've been asked the Muntab question. Uh, King Verence was wondering about it back in uh, Carpe Jugulum. Yes. Yeah. Um, I've kind of answered it. You can't see because of where my camera is, but I found Muntab on the uh, Discworld map. Oh, so good. I don't know if that answers the Muntab question, but at least I know where it is. I think it's very fitting that we can't see it. Yep. <laughs> kind of, Joanna knows where it is. <laughs> it's Rimwoods, south east of Ankh-Morpork. I had to remember which way around hmm. south, east and south are there. <laughs> anyway. God, stop me, Francine. Have you got an... Ob- oh, 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 oh. Have you got an obscure reference finial? But did you notice? Did you notice? There's actual finials in this book. Please, please enlighten us as to where the actual finials are. That's page 81. one of your favourite bits. <laughs> page 81 in my copy. Uh, I fought that at the start, but it's just an 18th century copy of the Ing Baroque style. They got the dimensions all wrong. Did you see them pillars in the hall? Ing 6th century Ephebian with 2nd Empire Degella Babian Ing finials. Exactly. Anyway, sorry. Tell no, me your actual obscure I reference. What, I was just trying to think, like, probably with Pratchett, the odds are shorter than they might have been. But, like, well, the odds of us trying to find the most obscure architectural word we could, and then it does turn up in another book in the series. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so obscure reference finial I'm using as an excuse just to put in a couple of bullet points about typesetting. Um, and the the excuse I'm using was from, what page did I put there? 29. Um, in the hardback, this is no good. I should stop saying page numbers. I'm just confusing the thing. Uh, where they're talking about the bigger trays with the the different letters in, but the more common letters, things like that. Which yes. Uh, which I didn't actually look into the most common letters in the English language. So that seemed kind of boring. Uh, is E? Yes, yeah, but like in like because it's a surprising number of ends. I was wondering oh, right. what the yeah. Um, but E is the most, is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, oh, I feel like that's one of those facts that's like commonly known, but I don't know if it's a fact. You know what I mean? Yeah. What was that? There was a book that wrote it. That was There's a very famous E's, book yeah. that was, I think someone made a point of writing without any E's. It was also a brief thing in Gilmore Girls. Someone goes to a party oh, and they yeah. all have to try and talk without using E's. Oh, they're such wankers. I love that show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, one of Jack's favourite facts I thought I'd put in here, which is that um, the capital letters were stored in a separate drawer or case that was located above the case that held all the other letters, which is why capital letters are called uppercase and cool. non-capitals are lowercase. Yes. Um, and the other little tidbit I came across while I was listening to things about the history of the printing press was mm. that, you know, back in the day, variable spelling was more of a thing before it all got 
pinned down like a rumor or a butterfly in a dictionary. Yeah. Um, variable spelling was kind of used as a tool to justify text in the early days of printing. So like, oh. if you wanted to make the white space a little bit less at the end of this, you'd put an extra couple of E's in there and uh, Just throw some vowels yeah. at it. Amazing. A delight. A delight. We, did, we didn't touch upon the pun or play on words with justified text, but I'm sure everybody saw it and was adequately amused. I hope everyone had a lovely little chortle. <laughs> right. I, chuckle. I think that's everything we should say about the uh, first section of yeah. the truth. We can go on about it forever, but we have two more sections to fill, so we probably better not yes. use up all the enthusiasm for the subject. Uh, so we will be back next Monday with part two, which talking is about starting. Journalism. <laughs> We're going to talk about journalism. Francine's going to talk about journalism. I don't know anything about journalism. You're going to listen to a podcast in preparation. Oh, I am. Yes, that's on my to-do list. Uh, we're going to pay pair. Hmm. Part two starts on page 146 in the Corky paperback. Uh, after three asterisks with the line, it sometimes seemed to William that the whole population of Ankh-Morpork was simply a mob waiting to happen. Do you know mine doesn't have asterisks? Does it not? Oh, I'm sorry. I'll stop trying to guide by asterisk. No, no, you also gave me the word, so it was easy enough to find. But... And we're going to end that section on page 301 in the Corgi paperback uh, with, I'm going to see a man about a dog. Ghetto. Ghetto. <laughs> Until next week. Dear listener, uh, you can you can follow us on Instagram at the True Shall Make Ye Fret, on Twitter at Make Ye Fret Pod, go to our Facebook page at the True Shall Make Ye Fret, join our subreddit community, r slash TTSMYF, email us your thoughts, queries, castles, snacks, and obscure typesetting knowledge if you have any. Oh, yes. The Truth Shall Make Ye Fret Pod at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us financially, go to patreon.com forward slash the True Shall Make Ye Fret and exchange your hard earned pennies for all sorts of bonus nonsense. And if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcast, that would be absolutely lovely. It helps other people find us because of the cursed algorithms. Try and write a review in the style of an old newspaper article. Use the long S if you wish. Bonus points for fracker or rumpus. Five stars. 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 <laughs> and until next time, dear listener. Don't let us detain you. Extra, extra. Read all about it. Yeah. Newsies. I was going to say, we didn't even mention newsies in that.